Is there something wrong with being aggressively optimistic? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Lawrence Schneiderman, Professor Emeritus in the Department of Family and Preventive Medicine and Adjunct Professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of California, San Diego. He's had a distinguished career in medicine and ethics. He's the founding co-chair of the UCSD Medical Center Ethics Committee, and he's been an invited visiting scholar and visiting professor at institutions across the United States and abroad. Dr. Schneiderman is the recipient of the Pellegrino Medal in Medical Ethics. Welcome to ReachMD. Thank you for inviting me. Happy to be here. Dr. Schneiderman, in your recent book, Embracing Our Mortality, you devote an entire chapter to the question, what could be wrong with hope? Tell us about that. Well, what could be wrong with hope is if it's not realistic, it doesn't help the person, it might even harm the person. A good example is when I had a patient with metastatic breast cancer, she was actually a friend who came to me and asked what should she do because an oncologist had been recommending uh, ablative chemotherapy and bone marrow transplantation. And as far as I knew at that time, this is before the randomized controlled trials were done, which showed that it was of no benefit, I told her that, in my opinion, there was no good evidence to support such a traumatic procedure. That wasn't good enough. The oncologist gave her hope. And so he said, we should do it because this is the kind of procedure that will give you hope. And it turned out to be a very disastrous tour for her. She suffered a lot, and in fact, later when it showed that there was no benefit, she was quite characteristic in that she didn't live any much longer than she would have with what was then considered conventional chemotherapy. But hasn't hope been shown to be a positive factor in patients' recovery, though? In fact, no. No. In fact, that whenever people make this claim and examine it in good, randomized, double-blind control trials where they really try to see, does uh, an optimistic attitude, does installation of hope really prolong life or help the patient, the answer always turns out to be no. And these uh, are cited in my uh, book. For example, there's a famous study called the SUPPORT study of over a 1,000 patients who were terminally ill. What they did was they compared the outcomes of patients whose prognosis was worse than their own estimation of the prognosis. In other words, these were patients who, when asked, how long do you think you'll live? How well do you think you'll do? They were far more positive and hopeful than the physicians who had what was obviously a more realistic estimation. It turned out that these patients didn't live any longer, and all they did was suffered more because they underwent procedures like ventilation, attempted CPR, with all the traumas associated with that, and without any evidence that their lives were prolonged. What does the research tell us about physician behavior with regard to hope? Well, it's very variable. Physicians, as it turns out, have a hard time dealing with giving bad news. There there are a variety of reasons. One of those that I suggest is physicians really think that they are exceptions to the rule, that they take such good care of patients that their patients will do better. 
And also, there's a problem. If a physician tells a patient, you know what, uh, you've got a bad disease and the median survival is only three months, this may be reporting the best studies. But if the patient lives six months or a year, which is, after all, what you would expect with the distribution, uh, just random distribution, the patient is more likely to say, oh, that dumb doc, he told me I was going to be dead by now. Look at how long I'm living. Doctors hate to hear that. <laughs> and I think that that may be one of the factors. Now, I, I'm thinking as you're speaking that is this different from culture to culture? So I would guess that in the United States, we're much more aggressive about these sorts of hopeless treatments than they are in other parts of the world. Is, is that true? Yeah, that is true. That In fact, in Europe, they just think we're bizarre. There was a famous case that I think the doctors must have heard about, the uh, Terry Schiavo case, oh, where yeah. uh, this was a young woman who was permanently unconscious. It was kept alive for over 15 years. And the family, the parents, not the husband, the parents were hoping for a miracle and were insisting that Perry will be continued on a feeding tube. In Europe, this was a famous case as an illustration of those crazy Americans. How could they do something that stupid uh, to continue medical treatment for someone who, who is so beyond the chance of revival? There are some cultures, and uh, they are in this country, the Native American culture and some religious, ancient religious traditions that also believe that if you give the patient bad news, it's bad for the patient. This has never been tested, but it is truly a cultural phenomenon. Is there more attention now being put on these issues with all the discussion about cost containment? Clearly, these things must cost an enormous amount of money and put added burden on our health care system. Yeah, there's no question that one of the issues we're going to have to face is the rationing of health care. But I like to distinguish between telling a patient and deciding on a treatment based on its medical indications. If a treatment is futile, for example, if there's no realistic chance the patient will benefit, that treatment should not be offered, whether it's cheap or expensive. This will then give us a new line on those treatments which could be beneficial, which we have to decide how to distribute them. For example, heart transplant. Mm -hmm. Clearly, if someone is in end-stage congestive heart failure, receiving a new heart could benefit that patient considerably. The problem is we don't have enough hearts to go around all the people who need them. And so we will, in the future, have to deal more realistically with the notion of rationing. Right now, it's the R word. Politicians are still saying the absurd thing, oh, we can't have rationing in our country, that would be bad, or we can't do this because that would be rationing. In fact, we're rationing irrationally now, and we just have to hope that someday we'll come to our senses and be able to make a, a better distribution of our health care resources. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Lawrence Schneiderman, author of Embracing Our Mortality. We are discussing what is wrong with hope. Dr. Scheiderman, does promoting the belief in hope force us into really what's an untenable position as physicians? Yeah, and, and let's, let me just say that physicians can be honest as well as giving the patients an, a good, realistic sense of hope. 
remember, when we talk about the average lifespan in a patient, say, who's being treated for cancer, what we're talking about is the median survival. In other words, we're saying that with this treatment and this disease at this stage, the person in the middle, not what we call the average, but in fact it's the middle person, will survive three months. That means that half of them will survive fewer months and half will survive more. You can tell the patient, you know, you may well be in the long tail of the curve. That's good. The other point to make is when you tell a patient that you have cancer, you know, that's the big deal nowadays. Do you tell the patient she or he has cancer? And nowadays we're supposed to say yes, but that's not the whole truth. You have cancer. Here's what we can do for you. Here's what we will do so that you can be reassured that no matter what happens, we will stick with you. And if pain is a big problem, I guarantee, this is what I tell patients, I guarantee, I use that word, that we will treat the pain to your satisfaction. We can control it. It may, in certain extreme cases, require that we give you such high doses of pain medicine that you are sedated. But if that's what you want, don't be afraid. Under those circumstances, patients usually are willing to say, okay, I'll give a try to the treatment that you recommend, knowing you won't abandon me. In your book, you mentioned three types of what you call patient narratives. Tell us about those. Yeah, this was something by David Izzy. He, he kind of came up with three categories, which I thought were you know, very insightful. Patients can respond in what he called the linear restitution narrative. In other words, here comes the disease. I had great plans for my life. I'm going to continue those plans no matter what, and I'm going to expect a miracle. People like this, when they hear they have cancer and they may not live long enough to see their son graduate from college, which, of course, is a very sad experience, they will run around to all the quacks in the world looking for that miracle, and they really just will not accept the fact that they are mortal. That's what he calls a linear restitution. I'm going to continue no matter what. This disease will not, no matter what it does to other people, will not do anything to me. The second one is what he calls a linear chaotic. This is sort of the, the opposite, but it's also the same. In other words, when the disease comes, these people feel, why me? They get very angry. They go to pieces. They say, how could this happen to me? I will not understand, and the world is a cruel, terrible place. It's nature. We live and we die, and that's why I call it embracing our mortality. And this is what the third group, what he calls the polyphonic. These are people who are constantly experiencing what is good about the life that they have and can take pleasure in the simplest things. I had a patient, actually, a woman who had chronic fatigue syndrome. And the interesting thing is I discovered this in a patient with not cancer, but with a chronic condition of mysterious origins. She was hopeless when she came to me. She had this enormous chart because she had seen every specialist you could imagine, all of whom could come up with nothing to help her. And I just decided to tell her, look, you have a condition that is fatiguing you. If you had cancer, what would you do with this fatigue? Would you just sort of crump out and stay in bed? No, wouldn't you try to make the most of every moment of your life? Get out there and push yourself. Well, you're lucky in one respect. You don't have a disease that's going to kill you. So why don't you just go ahead and do the best you can? Well, week after week after week, she kept pushing herself 
experiencing what she was able to, not concentrating on her limits, but on her possibilities. And this helped her enormously. She was able to recover. And I think that this is what we try to help our patients discover at the end of life. It's not that you are limited completely. It's you've got things around you, the air, the smell of, you know, the leaves, your children, voices, friends. All those things are very important that we can appreciate much more. As Samuel Johnson said, if we know we're going to die and be hanged in a week, we concentrate our mind considerably. Mm. And I think that's what we can do. Well, thank you so much for being on our show today. My pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. We've been discussing embracing our mortality with our guest today, Dr. Lawrence Schneiderman. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. If you have comments or suggestions, please call us at 888-MD-XM-157. Thank you for listening.